0: It's the Adam Argusia Podcast, and I, Adam Argusia have news for you. The calorie counts that you see on food packages, those are wrong. Sure, different countries, different jurisdictions, they all have different regulations for how those calories should be counted, but they're all wrong. And what I just said is, as I understand it, not controversial among scientists who study diet and metabolism and all that stuff. They all agree that the widely adopted calorie counting systems are wrong. They do not agree about how to fix the problem. They do not agree about what system would be better, but they agree that the calorie counts are definitely wrong. Most significantly with regard to protein. Protein probably doesn't provide nearly as much net energy to the human body as the numbers would suggest. Our bodies burn a lot of the calories in protein in the process of digesting said protein, and that energy manifests as body heat, the thermogenic effect of food, aka the meat sweats. That portion of the protein you eat never has a chance to be used by the body for other things, like the accumulation of body fat. That problem with how we count protein calories — this is one of the chief observations of a new book by Cambridge University geneticist Dr. Giles Yo. He studies brain control as it applies to body weight, and his book is called Why Calories Don't Count — How We Got the Science of Weight Loss Wrong. Now, that title could sound a little bit like that of like a junk science book, but I assure you, this is not that. Dr. Yo is legit. Cambridge University. And Dr. Yo is not saying that the calories literally don't count in the sense that they don't matter. Calories absolutely matter. They do count. At the end of the day, body weight is all about how many calories you consume versus how many you expend. And Dr. Yo is not challenging that. Calories do count but he's saying that the way we count them is wrong. Humans actually get less energy out of protein, for example, than the dominant counting systems would lead you to believe. And furthermore, protein and other nutrients have distinct hormonal effects on the body that might lead us to be more or less hungry. So on the pod today, we're going to talk about all of that with Dr. Yo, and we're going to talk about how we might incorporate all of that information into our own Personal approaches to eating. Plus, we'll do failure of the week. But first, let's ask Dr. Yo how we got the science of calories wrong in the first place.
1: So I'm not here to, to, to look back in history and yell at people because I think people people do the best with the technology which they had. And so all of the calorie counts we see today everywhere um come from a guy called Wilbur Olin Atwater, who was a professor of chemistry at Wesleyan University in Connecticut in the United States, but between the years of 1880 and 1900 so this is so he's an old dude well he's a dead dude but 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 he's but he was around a while and so he understood what i call the sweet corn phenomenon that the corn and a cob phenomenon where if you eat corn and then you sort of look from the porcelain um, um bowl the next day you haven't absorbed all the calories and so what he did was he worked through a ton of different types of food fed them to human beings worked out what came out the other side right um, um and and sort of came up with a number of what we absorbed so he he took into account digestion um when it came to what we actually absorbed from from um from any given food but it could be a steak it could be a, a cake celery um and he worked this out but what he didn't work out was metabolism okay because it costs energy in order to metabolize your food two stages you first have to digest your food and that gets the food into their macronutrients into your gut And they're then passed across the gut into the bloodstream. That's digestion. From then on, it's metabolism. When these then macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fat, are transported to the cells, and the cells then metabolize it to produce the actual energy. It costs energy, and Atwater was unable to take into account the amount of energy it takes to actually metabolize the macronutrients, which is why all of the calorie counts um, everywhere are wrong
0: perhaps we could sort of march down, uh, macronutrient by macronutrient.
1: Um,
0: so, uh, protein, protein, Mm -hmm. as I understand it, uh, one of the reasons why protein is good for folks such as myself and basically everyone else who's trying to, uh, improve our body composition a bit, uh, lower body fat, improve lean muscle, boost lean muscle. Uh, protein takes energy to digest,
1: right? Protein takes a lot of energy to digest. So of the three macronutrients, protein is the best one to start with because it's most informative. And and the the, the critical information is this. So we, we do have to just deal with, with uh, fat and carbs. Just very briefly, we'll come back to it. Fat and carbs are made from carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. They're atoms, obviously, but in different formations, in different structure, uh, um, in tr- c- configurations. So they're actually relatively... Um, they're actually relatively efficient to deal with. The problem with protein is it's chemically complex. And it's chemically complex because it not only does it contain carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, it also contains nitrogen. So when you're dealing with protein, unlike fat and carbs, you have to pull out, depending on what you're doing, if you're building something, you use the whole protein. If you're storing it, because sometimes you eat too much protein and it gets converted into fat. If you're storing it, you have to remove the nitrogen, okay? And you remove the nitrogen, you wee it out. It comes out in your pee as urea, um, and that takes energy. So for every one hundred calories of protein that we eat, we only ever absorb seventy calories, seven zero, because it costs thirty calories of protein just to deal and handle protein.
0: Um, and is that effect in addition to the, um, I guess what they would call the nutrient partitioning effect of protein, where where some protein
1: gets used to build tissue rather than as energy? No, that's part of it. So so, of so, it. so so that's part of it because because um I mean as you will know, pro- there is no dead store of protein. Okay, so in other words, there is there is you know in terms of fat, we have fat. In terms of carbs. We have glycogen to some degree, then it's mostly stored as fat. But there is actually no protein stores. You might say, well, here, what about these muscles? Yeah, but they're not a protein store. They're active. So protein is either used for one or two things. It's either used to build and repair, or you transfer it into energy. And it's that whole process that costs energy.
0: So that's a strong argument to eat protein if one is trying to increase lean body mass and Mm. reduce adipose tissue. But um, uh, it's funny, uh, when I – I've I've read, you know, I'm not I'm not a scientist, I'm not a nutritionist. I I read a lot of nutrition science. Um and it's funny that like basically all of the studies until really recently would say that carbohydrates are the most uh, protective macronutrient against obesity. Uh that is, that it is most the most satiating macronutrient. Um what changed? Why does nobody seem to believe that anymore?
1: Well, I, it's not, I mean, that's the odd odd thing. I'm not a, I have to say I'm not a low carber. I don't think that carbs are poisonous or evil, but carbs are definitely not the most satiating. In fact, if anything, carbs are the least satiating in particular, um, if you're dealing with refined carbs, so either white flour, um, flour without any fiber or the powdered white stuff, sugar. Okay. Um, but what is true? is that fiber actually plays a very big role in also helping you uh, feeling satiated, let let alone the effects on the microbiome. So I think part of where this came from probably has to do with whole grains. And so actually, if you actually eat whole grains and if you actually eat carbs with a ton of fiber in it, um, they are going to be great for you. um, And they are going to be quite satiating. The stuff that's not is the refined stuff, the powdered white stuff and white flour.
0: To bring it back to where we started, fiber, in the case of the corn example, <laughs> is the the stuff that comes out the other end.
1: Exactly, or lentils, right. or anything right. else that that that, that we eat. and fiber, and we don't eat enough fiber, nowhere close to enough fiber, um, in in the modern world.
0: Okay, um, what about fats? Uh, fats seem to have enjoyed a bit of a a, a renaissance, a a a, re, a, um, a rehabilitation. <laughs> Among among nutrition experts in recent years, they were sort of considered the primary dietary devil in you know the 80s and the 90s. Uh, why did the attitude on those change, do you think?
1: I think it's because – well, I'd like to think we have a more nuanced view on fat. Um, it, we'll deal with the thermogenic effects of fat first because it's easy. Sure. There are hardly any. Fat is incredibly efficient. If you actually have – it is the one macronutrient in the calorie counts that Atwater pretty much got. Correct. So if you had a hundred, if you have a hundred calories of fat, you got a hundred calories of fat. Okay. So we can we we can, we can put that aside. Um, but that's because I think we have a more nuanced view of what fat is now. When people say fat is bad, then the question is, well, what kind of fat are you talking about? Are you talking about beef fat, like fully saturated fat, or are you talking about polyunsaturated fats? Or are you talking about fish fat? And then depends on what we're talking about. We can then not that they're bad. But then how much are you able to eat? Okay. And I think saturated fats, particularly animal-based saturated fats, it's probably best we don't have as much of, Um, not don't have any, not have as much of. But if we're dealing with polyunsaturated fats, such as from olive oil, such as fish oils, well, then there's actually very good evidence that they're actually protective. Now, there's very, very different. It's not going to protect you from from gaining weight because at the end of the day, if you drank a gallon of olive oil... You're still going to put on a lot of fat, but if you ate it in the kind of amounts in salad dressings and the foods that we eat, they're actually protective against heart health, which is different slightly from your weight. So I think it's just nuance. We're now having a better understanding that fat is not just fat. It really, really does matter what type of fat and what the source of fat is.
0: I have a hypothesis I'd like to run by you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> just from my amateurs chair. Um, you know, you look at these older studies and they all say uh, that that you know fats are not satiating at all and that carbohydrates are at least in the immediate sense. It's different from satiety, right? but mm. at least in the immediate sense. And certainly like anecdotally, that's true, right? like if you're if you're hungry, If your blood sugar is low, you can eat one piece of candy and immediately feel better, right? Mm. Whereas like you eat like a pat of butter, it's not going to immediately make you feel better. Um, But uh, so what I wonder is um, maybe maybe when they were researching these topics earlier, it was an earlier time when overeating was not as insane as it is these days. And people are eating so much food now that like – we're encountering the phenomenon where you, you've eaten so much fat that it's like, it's because fat delays gastric emptying, right? That like, you're getting that feeling of literally being full. Like I've had so much pizza that, and, and the fat is delaying gastric emptying to the point where if I, I have that feeling that if I put another slice down my gullet, I will literally throw up because there's no room in there. And that is sort of a satiating effect of, of fat, that you experience when you're extremely overeating, that maybe would not be apparent at more kind of mild (laughs) forms of overeating. I don't know, you think I'm onto anything real there?
1: No, no, I think you might actually. So, So in terms of certainly what is true, is the reason – certainly if you went back – okay, it's not the 80s and 90s. That's when the problems begin to emerge. But we remember the 50s, for example. People always yeah. tell me. So I study the – I'm a geneticist. I study the genetics of body weight. And so yeah. people always say, how can it be about genes? But our environment has changed, right? Yeah. And so in the past, we never would – I always uh, uh, put out the, the bowl of cereal uh, example. Now, when I first moved to the UK, which was in the early 90s, um, all shops were closed. All grocery stores were closed on Sunday. This is this is. It was only recently that they that they open every day. And so, if you wanted a bowl of cereal on Sunday night, okay, in the 1990s, yeah. and you didn't have cereal or you didn't have milk, well, you were tough out of luck. You had to wait till Monday before you went to the store and got yourself a bowl of cereal. The problem today is obviously you can dial up Deliveroo, Uber Eats. Someone will go to the supermarket for you and get you a bowl of cereal. Okay, whenever you want. So the, the environment has changed so much that we are now in a position to actually begin to demonize foods. Because in the past, it actually didn't really matter what you ate because you barely had enough. So, so yeah. you ate what was there. You ate the antelope. You ate the fat. You ate if, 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 uh, the honey. Um, and it was fine. It's only we're having too much of it. Now we're beginning to see the effects because now it's like, well, hang on a second. You have as much as you want. That's a problem.
0: Yeah. And I wonder, is it then realistic to expect that the obesity crisis can be addressed through personal behavioral moderation? When you're you're a geneticist, you can confirm or deny my assertion that I'll make right now that human beings are genetically programmed to want to eat more food than we need. We're supposed to eat more than we need because food isn't always available in, our, in the environment for which we are evolved. And here we are in a completely different context to which we are maladapted. And maybe shouldn't we just admit that it's going to need to, it's going to require some kind of technological adaption on our part to fix this problem. Like, you know, wearing shoes, uh, it's just something that you need to add to your body in order to adapt for modern life. Shouldn't we all be on appetite suppressants all the time in order to, uh, 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 just adjust for this new context we find ourselves in for which we
1: are not evolved. So I think you, you are right. In broad strokes, you're 100% right. So we are evolved for a feast-famine environment. That's what we evolved in, all right? Because that's just naturally how food, whereas we're now in a feast-feast environment and yeah. that's toxic to us. But, and just, just to be clear, but not all of us are, are fat or not all of us have obesity in this current environment because even amongst the uh, even within a feast-feast environment, there's some of us who are more or less likely to gain weight than others, even though on average we're all we're all gaining weight. Um, but you are absolutely correct. The the push for for certainly one hundred percent personal responsibility. There is of course some level of personal responsibility. It's my body, it's my children's health. I should be trying to make an effort. This this I agree. But when you hear policymakers, the governments who who you, you, whenever they're making and they put, well, it's up to people to make their own minds up. It, it will never work in in in, in that setting because pop- obesity is a public health problem, which is a response to the food environment we live in. The way we fix it permanently is one of two ways. We can be on permanent appetite suppressants if we can find ones that are safe enough um, and work, because at the end of the day, that makes you eat less. Um, Or or, and or we try and fix the food system and food environment we actually live in today. That's probably more complex, but I, I, I think that we need to do both in order to try and fix the problem, certainly sustainably.
0: Okay, so um, when you say uh, fix the food environment, I think you're referring to one of the w- explanations for why some people are more likely to o- be obese than other people, and that is that some people only
1: have access to ultra-processed, highly refined food. Poorer people, and, and these tend to be poorer people. I want to point out. So, so yeah.
0: So there's a socioeconomic factor that results in some people
1: more likely to be obese than others. But what, what are the genetic factors? So the genetic factors, um, we we consider heritability. Heritability is the percentage of a given trait, boldness, eye color, height, weight, that is going to be down to your genes versus the environment. So the heritability of body weight is actually a range, okay? It's actually between 40 to 70%. So on average, it's 50-50, but it is a big range between 40 and 70. So I guess the question is, uh, which means that if you take the yin to the yang, it's between 30 and 60% environment. So it's, the environment plays a big role. The question is why there is a range. And there is a range because unlike other traits... The environment plays a very big role in in, in terms of how we respond. So just to give you an example, okay, so remember the 40 to 70% range. I've got a colleague of mine, um, Professor Claire Llewellyn, who works down at University College in London, and she has a twin cohort. So you study twins, identical twins, non-identical twins, and you can work out – what the percentage, what heritability is, and but unique, and she studies body weight like me, and the unique element of her twin study it's called the Gemini cohort. People can people can Google it, Gemini cohort London, and read all about it. Um, is that she has socioeconomic questions. Um, with her twins, so if you go to the twins in the poorest households, okay, they max out their heritability of body weight at seventy percent. Okay. Whereas if you go to our households, I'm going to assume you, like me, are middle class, all right, um, um, we suddenly have our heritability of body weight drop to 40%. So,
0: uh, excuse me, I'm just going to interrupt really quickly. Um, yes. Uh, Brits and Americans have very different definitions of middle class. So just for people listening who might not know, uh, in the United States, middle class generally means what you would call working class in the UK. Um, uh, in the UK, what you call middle class is what we would call maybe professional class here or upper middle class. Uh, people. That's college- who we're talking about. Yes. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah.
1: Okay. Professional right. I'm class. so sorry. Yeah. No, no. 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 That's a good. That's a good point. That's a yeah. good point. And so the the question is: Wait. Wait a minute. There is no genetic difference between people who are poor and people who are professional class. I'll use professional class. So why is there a shift in genes? Right. Because it's an accident of birth. It's because of the environment. So put very simply. Put very simply. This 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 is it. If you if you have the genetic susceptibility to not say no to food, I love pizzas too much. I won't say no to it. Okay. But if you were me okay, professional class, and suddenly I open my fridge. I, I live in a in a nice place in the suburbs, um, you know, there's no takeout next to me, and I open my fridge, and I have carrots and and hummus, or whatever, <laughs> and so that's what I eat, all right, or a bowl of cereal. But if suddenly you're in an inner city, you're in the projects, you're poor, and you live next to takeouts, and the takeouts are cheap, okay, and so suddenly the, the, the environment difference is what you end up Feeding yourself when you suddenly feel the urge to actually, to actually feed—that's why there's this huge difference. So there is a genetic element to body weight, forty to seventy percent, but it's hugely, um, it's hugely um, influenced by the environment.
0: With regard to carbohydrates, uh, in particular, or really any of them. Um, uh, something I'm curious about is the distinction between satiation, feeling full in the moment, versus satiety, uh, feeling full over long term, being less likely to, you know, eat another meal an hour later. Mm. Um, and it seems to me, at least in my anecdotal experience, that that carbs are, carbs are the worst offender <laughs> in terms of being very satiating in the moment, but making me want to eat again an hour later, especially
1: if they are refined carbs. Um, why do they do that? Okay. That's because – so, you know, people people think uh, – people say that when you eat, our our base fuel in our body, which is actually floating around, tends to be glucose. It's fatty acids elsewhere for long-term, but for short-term, is glucose, but primarily because sugar, Prim- primarily because our b- brain cannot use fat, it has to use sugar. It can use ketones as well, but we'll leave that out. Okay, we, it, it can use sugar. And when you actually take carbs, your sugar goes up the quickest because – Carbs can can be starch or they can be sugar, and so it's it, your sugar levels go up the quickest when you have carbs because it's the closest to the blood sugar level. Now protein will put your sugar levels up eventually once it works through the system, and so will fat. Okay, and so the problem with carbs is that if particularly if you're eating refined carbs, the the blood sugar levels go up pretty quickly. Now, the, there is a big difference when you eat something with fiber. Now, fiber will always come from plants, and plants primarily have um, primarily have carbohydrates in them, primarily. okay. And so what fiber does in a plant, this is the equivalent of the difference between drinking OJ, orange juice, and eating the orange. If you drink orange juice, it's packed full of sugar, as much sugar as you find in Coca-Cola okay, or any kind of soda. Um, the, the sugar gets absorbed almost immediately, and your blood sugar levels go up. Whereas if you actually eat an orange, a, there's the act of chewing. B, so your body begins to think, "Oh, I'm about to eat," mm. and B, your body has to work to get the sugar out of the out of the orange. And so, what happens is exactly the same amount of sugar, right? Because it's the same it's the same food, is then released slower over time. The spike in sugar, uh, and therefore the spike in insulin that actually goes up, is g- gives that immediate satiety hit. But then, as it comes back down again. You suddenly feel hungry again because the blood sugar levels, because the insulin goes up, the sugar goes into, in, into your body, and then suddenly you feel hungry again. Whereas if you release it more slowly over time, and this can be eating foods with fiber or eating protein and fat, for example, well, then the blood sugar levels, the peak comes a little bit later, and it takes a little bit more time. So therefore, that sugar level stays up a little bit more for a longer period of time, and so therefore, you then get the satiation from that. That's the reason why. It's just it's just that there are other things that make you feel full other than the calories. So, for example, if you have protein, then hormones make you feel fuller because protein results in the release of different hormones. Um, and so that also makes you feel fuller. That has zero effect on, on calories. It has nothing to do with the calories and nothing to do with how much you use but with the macronutrients. So on top of just the calorie and, and the metabolism element, there are also hormonal responses to the macronutrients that make us full, fuller, fuller or less full. From a,
0: from a geneticist point of view, wh- mm. why, why would you reckon we evolved to have that response
1: to protein? Because protein is very, very, very important to us. We okay. We can't eat too, too much protein, depending on what you're doing. Okay, If you're lifting and if you're really, really using the protein, you can eat quite a bit of protein because your body uses it. You can't eat too much because you have to get rid of the nitrogen, but you definitely need a minimum amount of protein. And the reason why you need a minimum amount of protein is because we don't store protein. So in other words, we need it for repair. Every bit of our body needs to be repaired using protein. We need it to make sure that we stay uh, strong enough to actually move stuff around. And so the amount of protein in our diet is absolutely crucial to our survival in all creatures. Whereas fat, you can store lots of fat. We have enough fat in in us to keep us alive for months. Um, Sugar can be converted from most other things such as uh, uh, such, such as fat. You need a little bit of, of, of carbohydrates. That is why protein is so important because you have to eat the protein and you have to eat the protein enough at the time. You can't say, I'm going to eat my steak on Monday. I'm not going to eat any protein from Tuesday to Sunday. Don't work like that. You have to eat enough protein every single day for it to work. That's why.
0: More good arguments for eating protein from Dr. Giles Yeo of Cambridge University, author of Why Calories Don't Count — How We Got the Science of Weight Loss Wrong. It is linked in the show notes. Buy a copy. Help a scientist out. Thank you, Dr. Yeo. Now here's a little thing I wrote called fix it in the mix. Now that the doc is gone, let's just you and me talk about things for a sec. Do you think that the message of that interview was that you and I should eat more meat? Because that does seem like a logical conclusion one might draw from the last 20 minutes. I would like less body fat and more lean muscle mass, and I don't want to be so darn hangry all the time. Sounds like I can achieve these objectives by eating more meat, because lean meat at least is mostly protein and water. That's a logical conclusion you could draw from the last 20 minutes, but I don't think it's the right one. It's not for me, anyway, and it's probably not the conclusion Dr. Yo would want most of us to draw. I reckon that adjusting one's diet is very similar to adjusting one's audio mix, hence the title of this little essay I have elided into Fix It in the Mix. When people are recording music or movies or whatever sound they're recording, and there's a problem with the sound, they'll often say, well, we'll fix it in the mix. Mixing is when you make adjustments to audio that you've already recorded. For example, balancing multiple tracks of audio. For the interview I just played you, I had two simultaneous independent tracks or layers. There was my voice on one layer and Dr. Yo's on another. I needed to make sure that he and I were both equally loud and I was a little too loud on the original recording, so I needed to fix that. And in my many years of experience recording audio, first in music and then in radio and pod and video, I have noticed something. I have noticed it in myself and I've noticed it in the many students that I taught back when I taught university for a living. Inexperienced audio mixers Usually, fix problems in the mix through an additive process. Here's what I mean by that. If Adam's voice is like a little too loud and Dr. Yo's voice is a little too quiet, the inexperienced mixer fixes this problem by making Dr. Yo louder to match Adam, who was louder to begin with. Among experienced, successful mixers, it is almost axiomatic that good mixing is usually about subtractive processes, taking stuff away. Go watch Glenn Fricker on YouTube. Spectre Sound Studios is the name of his channel, Glenn Fricker. He's a record producer slash engineer, gets really angry about stuff. Maybe that's just how it is when you primarily record metal music, but uh, Glenn is awesome. Glenn is going to be on this podcast soon. Uh, Glenn will tell you that when one thing is louder than another, the better solution is usually to make the loud thing quieter rather than making the quieter thing louder, at least in the mixing phase. And it's not just about balancing tracks with each other. It can be about changing the frequency prominence within a track or across tracks. If you feel like you can't hear the bass instrument as much as you would like, Don't just boost the bass up. Don't just make the bass louder if you want to hear more bass. First try cutting the bass frequencies out of the other instruments. Cut the bass frequencies out of the guitars and maybe even the drums a little bit so that they're not competing so much with the bass instrument. Make a hole in the mix for the bass player to sing through. Glenn would never advise that though, because Glenn hates bass players. (laughs) I think that's mostly part of his act anyways. The subtractive approach usually works better. Why? Because with audio production, you're up against a ceiling. You can only add so much. In essence, a digital audio recording is just a sequence of loudnesses or amplitudes more precisely, but I'll say loudnesses because that's a more colloquial term here. A digital audio recording is just a sequence of loudnesses ranked on a numerical scale. Let's simplify the scenario and imagine that it's a scale of 1 to 10. It's actually going to be a lot more potential values than that, but let's just imagine that it's ranking loudnesses on a scale of 1 to 10. An audio recording causes your speaker cone to push air forward and backward, and that makes the sound. What the speaker cone needs to know is how much air to push, how far to push at any given instant. You combine thousands and thousands and thousands of distinct pushes of distinct intensity into a single second, and you string those seconds together and you get audio frequencies. You get sound, music, pod, the digital recording simply needs to rank each of those intensities, those loudnesses on a scale for each fraction of a second in which the recording is taking a sample, we call it, of the sound to be recorded. In our simplified scenario, that's a scale of one to 10. One is the least amount of air the speaker cone can move by pushing forward and backwards, and 10 would be the most amount of air the speaker cone can move by pushing forward and backwards. 10 is the ceiling. If you want the bass to be louder, or if you want Dr. Yo to be louder relative to the other sounds in the mix, you could make them louder, but remember you're up against a finite ceiling. Eventually you're going to get to the point where almost everything is a 10. The digital data for that recording is just going to be 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. And that is no data at all. Because sound is all about differences from one fraction of a second to another. When you scrunch everything up against the ceiling, you get data loss. You lose. You lose all of the distinctions that used to exist from one fraction of a second to another. This is distortion. Here, I'm gonna squeeze the sound of my voice against the ceiling. Not every fraction of a second is gonna be 10 out of 10. That would just be nothing. But there's going to be a lot more tens per second than there is right now, let me tell you. And I'm going to take the overall volume of this example down so that I don't blow your head off. You shouldn't need to adjust your volume at all on your listening device. But here's what it sounds like when I make everything in my voice louder and scrunch everything up against that finite ceiling of this audio recording. So... Here we are. This is the example. This is my voice with everything turned up way too much. There's way too many tens per second going on right now. That was unpleasant. Yes. But what I gave is a very crude explanation of what has occurred in the uh, loudness war in popular music production over the last 30 years or so at this point, you may have heard of it. Music producers basically making all of the quiet fractions of a second in their recordings louder so as to make the overall average sound of the songs louder so that their song will sound louder than the next guy's song that comes up on the playlist. The result is music that sounds like it's been squeezed through a toothpaste tube, which if you're young is basically all you've ever known. And that's just the way the music is nowadays and has been for a couple of decades now. It sucks. But the particularly astute among you are probably thinking, wait a minute. If the ceiling is finite, then so is the floor. If I correct mix imbalances by making things quieter, doesn't that pose the same hazard just in the opposite direction? Won't I eventually end up with a quiet recording that's just one, 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 instead of 10. ten 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 ten? Isn't that just as bad? Well sure it's just as bad, but that probably isn't as realistic of a hazard when you are mixing sound. Recordings tend to naturally bias toward ten rather than one. Nature abhors a vacuum. Living things show a strong bias towards survival. When people record sound, they're trying to record sound more so than the absence of sound. Your recording is probably going to be closer to being too loud than it is to being too quiet. You're already closer to the ceiling than you are to the floor. So when you need to adjust elements relative to each other, Usually it's best to start by moving one of them closer to the floor than by moving the other one closer to the ceiling. It's not always the case, but usually good to bias toward doing that. Subtractive solutions rather than additive solutions. Similarly, if you are listening to this program and, and if my analytics are accurate, you are probably closer to the ceiling in your ideal food intake than you are to the floor. Most people within the sound of my voice right now probably eat a little too much food, at least a little too much food, myself included. When I formulate recipes for my YouTube channel, I have to make some judgment as to how many portions I'm gonna say this makes. And people sometimes say my portions are too small. And I say, with all due respect, have you considered the possibility that you maybe eat too much food? For all the reasons we just discussed with Dr. Yo, human beings, and probably most other animals, we all evolved to seek and destroy more food than we need at any given moment, at least, because winter is coming. There will come a time soon when there will be no fruit on the vine. So you gotta eat all the fruit while it's there. That's the world that we're evolved for. So if you have the option to overeat, you're probably gonna overeat. And most people within the sound of my voice right now have the option, including me. So we are all probably closer to the ceiling than we are to the floor. So when somebody presents you with an argument that a food is good for you, that a food would help you to achieve your goals, whatever those goals may be, think about the best way to adjust your mix Is it to eat more of the good food? Or is it to eat less of the bad foods? Either option will increase the proportion of the good thing in your diet relative to the bad things in your diet. But if you're eating too much food already, or if you're on the cusp of eating too much food, turning up the volume might not be the right approach. I think we see this with all kinds of consumption, not just with eating. If you're worried about your impact on the environment, you might think, oh, I should, I should buy this greener product. The company selling the greener product would certainly like you to think that. But consumption is rarely the answer. Buying another thing is rarely the most effective course of action. The best course of action is usually to do nothing. Instead of buying X instead of Y, don't buy either X or Y if you can avoid it. And certainly for the love of God, certainly do not throw away a perfectly good Y just so you can buy X because X is greener, right? That don't make no sense. Fixing things in the mix is usually best done with subtraction rather than addition. And indeed, increasing the proportion of protein in your diet might naturally lead to a subtractive solution. As Dr. Yo says, protein may provoke hormonal responses that make us less hungry. Anecdotally, I think that I have found that to be the case in my own body. But I still don't think the message of our conversation with Dr. Yo is eat more meat. The message might not even be eat more protein. But first let's look at the meat issue. I eat meat, I cook meat, everybody knows that. I don't see any fatal moral flaw in raising and slaughtering animals for food, provided that we do it humanely. Problem is, I am increasingly convinced that it is impossible to do humanely on the scale at which we currently do it. For the sake of humane treatment alone, I think we all gotta be eating less meat. And I have cut my meat consumption to maybe a quarter of what it was just a couple of years ago. It really wasn't that hard. Non-meat foods are easier to cook, honestly, and they're a hell of a lot cheaper. I think that the environmental impact of meat eating is a lot more complex than certain vegans on the internet would have you believe, but I am nonetheless convinced that people like me, reducing meat consumption, especially our consumption of like large fish and beef, that is almost certainly going to be a net good for the planet. Controlling... Our eating is not just about maintaining an energy balance that will allow us to maintain a healthy body composition. This is also about maintaining a healthy balance with all of the systems of production that provide us with food. Most of us eat too much damn food, and our overconsumption drains those economic and natural systems. So, I think solutions to our overeating problem. Those solutions need to address both how overeating hurts our bodies, but also how it depletes those systems of production. Therefore, Orlistat has gotta be one of the worst diet pills ever. You ever heard of Orlistat? It is sold over the counter as ally. You know, I tried it many, many years ago. It is a lipase inhibitor It stops your body's lipase enzymes from breaking dietary fats down into absorbable free fatty acids. Your body can't digest the fats that you eat, so you just pass them like so much dietary fiber, like greasy dietary fiber. (laughs) It is disgusting. And I am not a doctor. I'm not going to sit here and say this drug shouldn't exist. I could totally imagine that it has legitimate use in people with all kinds of problems caused by dietary fat. But when I was talking earlier with Dr. Yo about how I am increasingly convinced that all of us need to be on diet pills, that ain't the pill. (laughs) Ally ain't it. Because even if it didn't result in uh, occasional downstairs disasters, it's still only a pill that addresses one of the problems associated with overeating, which is the damage we do to our own bodies. It does not address the other big problem, which is how we are draining all the systems of production that feed our consumption even if you don't digest that oil, you still ate it. So somebody still had to grow the plant from which that oil was pressed and somebody still had to process it and package it and drive it to your grocery store. And after you eat it and pass it, somebody still is gonna have to uh, get it back out again at your local wastewater treatment plant. And I wonder if there isn't a similar argument to be made against the high protein diets. High protein, low other stuff diets really do seem to work for people looking to reduce body fat and add muscle mass. But part of the reason they work — we now know from Dr. Yo, is that our bodies burn about 30% of that protein simply in the process of digesting the protein. That inefficiency manifests as body heat, the thermogenic effect of food, known colloquially as the meat sweats. The meat sweats are real. And if you live somewhere hot like I do, you might seek to counteract the meat sweats with air conditioning, which could be nearly as resource-intensive as the agricultural and logistical systems that brought that protein to you in the first place, only for you to burn off 30% of it as wasted excess heat, and the cycle repeats itself. (laughs) Certainly this is all the more reason to not increase the proportion of protein in your diet with meat. I've been eating more protein lately. Not just proportionally more protein, but more protein. As Dr. Yo said, you really can use more of it if you are picking up heavy things and putting them back down again, which I've been doing a lot lately. I'm on a roll with my workouts. I look better, feel stronger, my clothes fit better, and yet my weight has held steady for the last three months or so at 200 pounds, totally unchanged. The only possible explanation for that is that I have burned some body fat and added some skeletal muscle, aka recompt, is what I've done, recombined my stuffs. And because of the law of conservation of matter, that muscle tissue had to come from somewhere. It came from my increase of dietary protein, I didn't get it from meat. Basically I'm just eating the same normal food that my family eats. I'm just having a protein shake with like every meal. It's convenient and it's not an animal. I really don't know if milk-based protein powders or plant-based protein powders are better, better for me or for the environment. The current food system results in a ton of whey as a byproduct from dairy, and it's gonna go somewhere if it doesn't go into human dietary supplements. I have no idea which is better. I've been hedging my bets and drinking both whey protein and various plant-based protein powders that I have been trying. It's been working for me up to a point, but I'm still fixing the mix by turning up the faders rather than turning them down. And that is not sustainable. Not for my body or for the systems of production that feed my consumption. 200 pounds is too heavy for a guy my height, whether it's fat or lean muscle. I need to reduce. And I think one way for me to do that, slowly, long-term, is to heed the other half of Dr. Yo's implicit advice in that interview. He was not just singing the praises of protein, you'll note. He was singing the praises of fiber. People in rich countries should have proportionally way more fiber in their diets, and I am certainly no exception. Fiber also makes you less hungry, and it is much more sustainable to produce than protein is. You know what food has a fair bit of protein, but also a ton of fiber? A delicious food, sustainable to farm, inexpensive to buy, potentially easy to prepare. I'm talking about beans, my friend. Legumes. Love them. Love beans. And I don't eat nearly enough of them. I certainly don't cook them on YouTube enough. I'm scared that people will not click on bean recipes. And I'm also scared that I'm not creative enough to come up with interesting bean recipes. I need to get over those fears and just try. So I'm going to work on that. Eat beans. Not in addition to, but instead of other stuff. That's one solution to our overconsumption problem. A solution that involves turning down a fader rather than turning one up. Beans can fix it in the mix. Make that your slogan, National Bean Council. Though real quick, I want to stress again that I do not think overeating is a problem that can be realistically solved by individual self-control, at least not on a mass population scale. I don't believe that any more than I believe climate change can realistically be fixed with individual self-moderation. I increasingly believe in purely technological solutions to both of these interrelated problems. But that doesn't mean we can't try to eat beans in the place of other foods in the meantime. I'm going to try. Beans are good. Hey, quick failure of the week. I made this uh, chicken sandwich recipe on YouTube on Thursday. It's this thing that I used to make for Lauren all the time in the before times, before we had kids. That made us forget about all kinds of things we used to like to do. <laughs> There's really no reason why having kids now prevents me from making chicken sandwiches. It's just a thing that kind of got lost in the shuffle. Every now and then Lauren will say to me, she'll say, hey, remember those chicken sandwiches you used to make with the aioli? Those were great. You should make those again. And I say, oh, yeah. And then I don't. But then I did. I made a video about the science of aioli for last Monday, and that video made me remember the chicken sandwich recipe that I used to make for Lauren with the aioli on it. And I love it when the Monday videos can connect in some way with the Thursday recipes. So I made and shot the chicken sandwiches on a weekend when Lauren was out of town. So she didn't get to eat that one. That's good husbanding, Ragusia. I don't think she knows. I don't think she watched the chicken sandwich video yet. Nor does she generally listen to this podcast. Not that many people do yet. So I appreciate you listening. Talk to you next time.